The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist executive search and TV production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Welcome to The Imposter Club, a podcast for people working in TV to admit that we are all just winging it. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, director turned talent company founder, and I glean secrets from influential figures in the creative industries every day. Spoiler alert, more successful people than you'd ever realize still feel like a fraud, but you don't get to hear their stories. That changes right here. In this podcast, it's my mission to discover how you can carve out an award-winning career in the company of self-doubt by asking respected senior people to share their stories of career fears and failures and what they learned from them. Come on in to the Imposter Club. But this is it. We're stepping into the Imposter <laughs> Suite right now. Welcome to my world. This week, I'm talking to freelance documentary director Ollie Lambert. Ollie's won over a dozen awards, including an Emmy, a BAFTA, a Grierson, and an RTS, and is best known for his films about ordinary people in extraordinary situations, particularly in war zones, including Syria across the lines, One Day in Gaza, and Ukraine, the people's fight. He's a director I have huge respect for, for so many reasons, not least his willingness to open up about his personal struggles with the industry he loves with a fierce loyalty. Come and sit in on our chat. Hey, Ollie. Good morning. How are you? I'm exhausted. What's... Just done a long weekend on my own with a five-year-old. I mean, it's like I've dragged myself to my desk by my fingernails. Absolutely spent. Oh, it's quite nice then to sit here and just gratuitously chat about your career. With Waffle me. on about myself. Yeah, exactly. It's like well, it's uh, now it's not all about your five-year-old. Now it's about you. I know. Yeah, he's a great deflection. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you for coming to talk to us at the Imposter Pleasure. Club. I mean, how do you feel about being part of a club that is um, all about people who feel like frauds? Uh, we're all we're all frauds. It's just a question of whether we realise it or not. <laughs> I think <laughs> who's brave enough to admit <laughs> it's all a sham. <laughs> you just fake it till you make it until you die. I think that's my motto. <laughs> and that's the spirit of the podcast. So I was reminding myself earlier of all the things that you've made. I mean, then they're, they're not uh, light-hearted projects, are they? It's. I puzzle over this because I, I regard myself as fairly light-hearted and jocular, and yet it does tend to be that the films I make are about war and child sexual abuse. I don't know what's going on there, but I, I suppose I'm drawn to like the limits of stuff. I find that quite exciting, you know, to go to the edge of stuff. Uh, it always feels like some sort of adventure. If it's not geographical, then it is in some way going to an extreme place it feels like oh this is worth it you do realize that this isn't proper therapy i hope you're seeing someone who's a specialist the thing is i see a therapist every week so it's very hard for me to switch out of therapy mode i'm now sitting sitting opposite at least pretentiously interested person uh so brace yourself (laughs) i'm there i'm with you it's all good but in all seriousness you know ukraine people's fight one day in gaza syria across the lines aftershock i mean that i had to actually scroll down three times on your website to get through all the awards you'd actually won not that you've been nominated for that you have won 
I mean, you're not the top of my list of people I would assume had imposter syndrome. Okay, well, that maybe that goes to the heart of it because I, you see, I hear you say, oh, well, you know, you won all these awards. I, I, this isn't faux modesty. My honest reaction to that internally is, yeah, I, I have won them, but I didn't, I didn't deserve to get them, right? I mean, I got it through so many sort of series of bits of luck through being in the right place at the right time, met the right person, or, you know, I could feel, I could tell you all the things I didn't film because I just made mistakes, but no one knows about that. I've never had the moment where the sort of, some, the fairy godmother appears with a magic wand and taps me on the forehead and says, you are now a documentary director. Or at least of all, you are now, you are now successful. And even when I've had that, I have had moments. I mean, I'd be like, I have had moments where I'm like, yeah, I've done it. Like winning a BAFTA is pretty much as big as it gets. But it lasted a matter of days. Because you've got, you can't, then the question is, could you do it again? No. <laughs> and, and you have to, how do you follow that? And, and also, I'll be really honest, when you win a big award, the phone does stop ringing. Really? I mean, I haven't worked for three months and I've, I've received three calls about work. So in a sense, it's like, well, what, what has that achieved? You know, is that because people just think I'm really sniffy or won't be available or wouldn't do it? Or it might be that people think I'm grand. Oh, he's won a BAFTA. He's won an it's going to be really expensive you know, now. be really expensive. I won't, it's not like I'm struggling for work. I think it'll be fine. I think the phone um, might ring a bit more now. Well, well, when, when the work gets out, it's like, do you want to do cash in the attic? <laughs> Love cash in the attic. <laughs> All right. Would you want to make it? It might be fun. You never know what you'll find. And actually looking at some of the things that you've made in the past anyway, you've always found the human story. You've always found the fun bit or the fascinating bit that other people wouldn't have. So who knows what you could unearth on cash in the attic? It might not even be some, you know, your granny's... Probably I'd unearth child sexual abuse and a sort of history of war crimes uh, in the attic <laughs> the Ollie Lambert version Let's do it. I think someone will commission that it's a special a filmmaker special mm. but anyway, we're going to explore your relationship with this imposter monster as I've come to calling it over the course of your career and I mean you've, you've said outright you have it but I'm I would love to find out how that feeling has affected the decisions that you've made all the content that you filmed and how they were sort of intertwined. Talk to me about earlier on in your career. Can you remember any specific moments where you were awash with a feeling of imposter syndrome? Uh, there's, I remember it very specifically the first time I'd got my first sort of break. Uh, first time I was actually sort of commissioned as a director. It was for Channel 4's sort of new director scheme, which was then called Alt TV and it's now called First Cut. And I was commissioned by Peter Dale, who was then head of docs, to make a film called Four Weeks to Find a Girlfriend, where I gave myself four weeks to find a girlfriend, and I'd film as much of it as possible. And I remember in the first, I think really the first week of that, I was sitting in an office at Oxford Film and Television in Primrose Hill, and I was writing someone a letter. And I remember at the bottom of the letter, I typed Ollie Lambert, and I underlined it, and then underneath I wrote the word director, and I burst out laughing. Because it seems such a preposterous, it's like as if as if that's going to make me a director, you know, putting it on a piece of paper and printing it out next door. That obviously that's ridiculous, right? And just because this guy at Channel Four has commissioned me to make it, well, that's that's not actually being a director. That's just someone asking you to be one. It's not actually doing it. I think to a large extent that sense of it being slightly ridiculous 
has never really gone away. I think I, I think my relationship with that feeling has changed. But I, but it always feels like even when, you know, I could make a film and I look at it and go, do you know what? That isn't bad. And like, I've I've had a hand on that, and that's all right. But it, it's gone in a flash, you know. And and you sort of back to square one because well, then the question is, can you do it again? So you got the job title and your signature. That makes it official. <laughs> I mean, literally, I, I laughed. I laughed out loud at myself. Like, you know, it's as if that's going to make it real, you know. <laughs> Directing documentaries is such a privilege. And I don't use that word lightly, but it's something that I'm feeling incredibly fortunate to have found myself doing. What do you mean by it's a privilege? What does that mean to you? It's, it's just an extraordinary honour to be, be paid as a, as a sort of your work, my working life is literally going to interesting places to meet interesting people and asking them about an extraordinary element of their lives which other people also find interesting I just get such a thrill out of going into places that seem chaotic and extraordinary and extreme and maybe incomprehensible to some extent sort of trying to make sense of them in a way and packaging them so that someone who I've never met could see it and have some sense of what that was like or who that person is or what that very remote distant experience could become real that ordering of chaos I find really satisfying and really interesting and the fact that I'd be paid to do that seems absurd often so I feel it's a it's a, it's a thing I really want to cling on to so the idea that I'm actually am able to do it always seems um, I either feel really lucky or I feel a fraud well especially when some people have proper jobs like saving lives in hospital yeah I used to live with a with an A&E doctor Rob you know when I was first living in London and we would come back and I, I, remember, I remember getting home one day I was actually I was an, an assistant producer and I spent the day I think in Worthing meeting I think it was Hulk Hogan who was going to be in Panto Amazing. and it was a, for a, a cutting edge a cutting edge documentary and I got back and I saw Rob and I said to him, how was your day? And he said, you know, someone had, you know, someone had died on the ward and there'd been a massive car accident and he was doing X, Y and Z. He said, what did you do? And I said, well, I was trying to see if I could persuade Hulk Hogan to be in a documentary. I thought, well, he was enormously envious of my life, but I was so envious of his. And I always felt like some fickle young, fickle young pup. <laughs> returning with these absurd tales of how I earned a living. I remember directing stuff and you know, sitting in the front room with someone who is incredibly vulnerable or had a very difficult story and just feels quite incredible that I can perch on the arm of the chair with the camera under my arm and this person sitting with this said camera in their face is going to talk about their most incredibly challenging circumstances to me because they're trusting me yeah, to tell what an honor. them. What an honour. That's what I mean by honour. It gives you a passport into other people's lives. The word director under your name or the camera in your hand allows you a sort of access to other people's lives um, that was very privileged. Uh, I think what's more true is it gives you a passport into your own life. It gives you, a, it gives you an ability to explore things that you're interested in maybe for quite personal reasons but it gives you an excuse to go on quite extraordinary sort of journeys in your own head to sort of find out how you react to certain situations and how you how you can inhabit the space of someone else who's 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 had a you know very different experience or life to your own um that 
it, then it becomes not narcissistic but it's, it becomes very kind of quite personal actually what you're doing even if that's not explicit in the film and I found that's happening more and more in the work that I do mm. so at the beginning then you got your director title you laughed out loud you felt like a fraud but you must have gone on and done a directy type thing um how what were the first sort of couple of experiences like as a director and can you give us any examples of of how you sort of handled that feeling that you probably weren't good enough I always felt that I was just messing around that was and maybe that was a that was a good thing but that first film for example four weeks to find a girlfriend it was just it was just me getting drunk for four weeks and going on dates and having it filmed in various different ways which didn't seem remotely like work it was pretty ridiculous and it was very good fun the next thing I did was a was a, a sort of historical film for Channel Four about Rasputin. I have no knowledge of Russian history. Uh, I mean, this is where the fraud stuff comes in. I didn't even know who the Romanovs were. I didn't really know who Rasputin was. I was commissioned to make this film about him and his life. Someone did a song about him, didn't they? They did. I mean, that's all I knew. I had an AP working for me and uh, who had sort of studied Russian history, and the questions I was having to ask him: like, Who are the who are the Romanovs? Oh, Catherine the Great. We, Catherine the Great. So, what was her role? And I knew nothing about this. And it was it was about six or seven months of winging it, of copying other styles of filmmaking, frantically learning about Russian history, in the most sort of ramshackle way, picking up bits and bobs. You know, frantically reading books, but not really having time to finish them cobbling together ideas and then producing this thing. I mean, it's. I feel slightly fraudulent about that film in a way, looking back on it, because I really wasn't qualified to do it. I didn't have any, I didn't have any, no- this is a film about Russian history. Hmm. I didn't, I didn't even do history A level, let alone Russian. Isn't that a good thing on the one hand, because you were kind of coming at it as a layman. And I imagine you weren't only wanting to appeal to an audience who already knew stuff about this. Yeah, I've tried that line on myself. I think it's nonsense. <laughs> I don't think that's good, actually. And uh, the positive side of it is, actually, that it, there's always a sense going in that, you, that I don't know enough or I'm not good enough. And that's quite debil- that can be quite debilitating. And when I made my first film, the, um, well, actually, it was, a, it, was a sort of, it was a sort of tryout film. Before my first day's filming as a director, I, would, I was developing this horrendous cough. Um, to the point where I would run out of air and I was collapsing. I was sort of getting, I was sort of exhausting myself and then collapsing. Gosh. I went for a chest x-ray, I was given codeine and and then when the filming was over, it stopped. And the only thing I can come up with is this is just purely a stress response to the enormity of the responsibility coming my way. And I, I think the kind of sense of how can one ever prepare for this? And that nervousness has become quite important it's become part of the process um, going into it just to say we've got a website head to theimposterclub.com where you can contact the show and sign up to receive our emails as we build a warm community of creative imposters for world domination don't get FOMO and head to theimposterclub.com after this episode Okay, I'm going to get a bit geeky for a minute because I want to tell you about a company we've partnered with that I wish had been around when I was directing. Conote Pocketbook was created by documentary producer Eleanor Casely when she found getting paper consent forms signed by contributors or cast on location was A, fiddly, B, difficult for the edit, and C, a complete time waster. Not to mention so easy to lose when you think about GDPR. 
With Conote, you can just log in on your phone, tablet or desktop to collect, store and track contributor information on your shoot, which is then instantly accessible in one safe place for anyone on the team that needs it. And you can even use the app offline when you haven't got any signal. I got embarrassingly excited, you could say, when I had the demo. It's so cool and easy to use. You take contributor photos, write notes about what's sensitive and keep the whole team in the loop. And I can see why people rave about how much time it saves in the edit and the obvious cost saving that that brings. So no more illegible coffee stained note saying, blur the brunette woman with short hair in coffee shop. And as a bonus, it's recommended by Albert as a sustainable solution that protects the planet whilst eliminating the faff. Prices start at just £95 a month and with Eleanor and the team offering Imposter Club listeners a 20% discount if you mention this podcast. So get in touch via the website. It's www.conote.tv, C-O-N-O-T-E.tv, or say hi to Eleanor directly, Eleanor at conote.tv. Surely by the time you've won a BAFTA and you are making really you know, critically acclaimed single documentaries, surely by that point, even if there's a bit of creeping doubt, you have a level of confidence going into your next project? Well, two things. One, it's one, it's very short-lived because you can have confidence going to the next project. Let's take that Syria film. Yes, I spent a couple of months in Syria, beginning of the conflict. It was very intense. It was very bloody. It was very dangerous. And it won all sorts of awards. And it would be very easy to go, hey, I've made it now. I've done it. But what, I've, what I can't shake off is the memory of actually making that film, which was, for example... For most of that film, most of the filming of that, I would wake up between 5 and 5.30 in the morning with a sense of literal terror, not from the physical violence that was taking place around there, but from the enormity of the task that I was taking on. And I I couldn't sleep. This this happened most mornings. Um, I would get up. It would often be half light or still dark. And I was living in a quite remote village um, in Idlib province. And I'd go for a walk um, up this hill and, and it was at dawn. And I would, I would literally sob. And the sobbing was just, this is too much. This is too big. How can I, this guy, and I was with a, with a local fixer, really lovely guy who spoke English and was, a, was sort of a journalist, but not a filmmaker, how can I, with this little camera, like a bag with a camera in it, possibly represent and do justice to the imperial levels of violence taking place around me in a conflict that is capturing the imagination of the planet and is changing the face of the Middle East? How can I possibly do that? And I'd have to sort of like steel myself, walk back down the hill, Abt would be waking up and he would say, you're right. And I'd say, yeah, 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 we're good. Let's go and let's just, let's just crack on. You know, let's just crack on. And, and the, the film I did in Iraq in 2003, mm-hmm. you know, so it's 20 years ago, I was sobbing in the morning in a bombed out building just outside the hospital in the Iraqi desert every morning. There's a little place I would go. I'd sit on this half broken breeze block and cry. With the weight of it. I the mean, weight of it, yeah. Did you, feel, did you feel like walking away at those points? Yeah, yeah absolutely. But I, I mean, li- I literally couldn't. I wanted to fly back. I couldn't get back from the Iraqi desert and I couldn't just, it would take me three days to get out of Syria. Um, yeah, by the time I came down, I'd make a coffee and 
Um, you know, it's interesting. It wasn't the personal danger of it, which was significant. It was, I'm just not, I just, how, I can't do this. I can't, there's so much happening here. How can I channel it and funnel it all through a camera and then make sense of it in a way that I don't yet understand or know about in a story that I haven't yet told with a central character I haven't yet met and who might not actually exist? It's, it's enormous. And So why did you carry on? I mean, you could have got out of there, surely. Or did you feel too much like if you didn't, you were letting your contributors, well, yeah, I mean, uh, your, you know, your, your now friends down? Well, at that, well, at various points, I mean, you know, in a production like going to Syria, at that point, we burned, you know, upwards of 80 grand at that point. You know, it, it is not acceptable to go, well, do you know what, I just can't do it. And there's a certain hardness that comes out of that. In the, the film I did called One Day in Gaza, there was a huge sort of crunch point during the edit where... Yeah, for about 20 minutes, I just thought, I'm, at, I'm done. I cannot do this. I cannot do this. And my wife picked me up. And then the next day, there was a sense of, all right, let's go to battle. And I'm going to win this. And we did. Um, and there's, maybe that's a resilience that I have now that I wouldn't have had uh, 15, 20 years ago. And when I've done stuff that feels, I wouldn't say easy, but like, oh, I've got this. I usually look back on it and go, well, it's not very good work. I was watching, I was rewatching Ted Lasso season oh, yeah. two. So it's great, right? And he's, you know, some of the stuff he comes out is it's ridiculous. But there was one where I saw what he said to the, the bearded coach. Um, they say if you're if you're riding a horse and it's comfortable, you're not riding it properly. And I think that's kind of well, like mo- I mean, a lot of creative endeavors. But the minute I the minute I start to feel comfortable in the making of a film, whether it's in the edit or the pre-production or the shoot, I'm uneasy because that I, I like being comfortable, but that's not how it is, you know. That's not but, how you know uh, you are at your best. Yeah, or in my experience, this job isn't easy. Right. right. So it shouldn't be easy. It shouldn't be comfortable. It shouldn't Therefore, be something easy. is wrong. Yeah, it's now become normalised. So wow, um, I, I wonder how many people would agree with that i'm sure there must be some people out there who think yeah that 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 scene i shot today brilliant got it in the can i mean i've had moments of going well that was good that was worth it but it, it, it's gone by the foot the next morning and i've met but i've met people you know contemporaries of mine in both drama and documentary who've in, been mid-production process and just said yes yeah, it's, it's going to be great and i think well you're either lying to me or yourself or this film's going to be shit. I just don't think the process right. should be easy. Now, I might be prejudiced there. It's like maybe I'm just jealous because they're finding it really straightforward. <laughs> Is that not something that they put out on their PR, but inside they're, you know, they're agonising over it? Maybe. But I mean, I think, but, I mean, we'll never know. But from my experience, the more universal experience is for it to be like this. I mean, for me, the sooner I can kind of recognise that and hold it close rather than push it away, the better. I know when I'm doing it. I have my avoidance strategies are very very advanced <laughs> they're, they're really good I mean at the minute at the minute I'm obsessing with I bought a new camera so yeah and I've noticed this in myself and in others actually film students who are obsessively building their camera rig and choosing on this radio mic over that and yep. this bracket for that and I'm thinking well you start filming in two weeks if I were you I'd stop thinking about the bracket and think, start thinking about the fucking story you know I think there is something really um, calming about throwing yourself into the tangible stuff that you can control in a creative process. I think I was the same. I really enjoyed the tech 
I enjoyed being able to shoot. I enjoyed fiddling with settings because it, it feels like a solid thing that you can control as well as a solid skill that you can show. It's the other stuff is uncontrollable, particularly in observational documentaries. Who your character is, finding them and what they're doing and being there when they're doing something that's interesting, it's, it's so hard to control. It's so hard to get your hands around. Whereas if you've got a physical object like a camera, I mean, I think the camera is a really good example of how, how film, documentary filmmakers in particular can distract themselves with feeling like they're actually doing the job while not actually doing the job. This is The Imposter Club. Coming up. I just thought that is it. I'm not a filmmaker. I've never been a filmmaker. And it became incredibly personal. If this is your first time listening to The Imposter Club, please hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode and so that we can reach more people. After all, the more people that are safe inside The Imposter Club, the fewer there are outside on their own. I need to take a minute to say a big thank you to the team at Edit Cloud for supporting the edit of The Imposter Club podcast. The founder, Simon Green, said it was an obvious partnership as Edit Cloud felt like the imposter of the post-production world when they began. They are the world's first truly native cloud-based virtual editing solution, connecting tech, training and talent all over the world. Edit Cloud was created by editors for editors, connecting storytellers everywhere, enabling them to craft their best stories to excite, enrich and inspire audiences wherever they are, much like this podcast. Thank you, team. I am so happy not to be crying into my laptop while I midnight edit. Welcome back to The Imposter Club. When has your imposter syndrome been at its worst over your career, would you say? Uh, well, I did. I almost jacked it in, the whole thing. When is this? Maybe about 12 years ago, 15 years ago. I was skinned. I just, I just bought a, uh, my first ever flat. And as I cycled up to collect the keys for my first ever property, I was cycling up Stoke Newington High Street mm -hmm. and there was an Evening Standard headline board and it said, London house price crash looms. <laughs> just as I was collecting my keys. And I had massively over-mortgaged myself at a time when it was, it was a really, it was really bad. And I, I've taken a job, it was a, it was a cutting edge and it was about, the idea was traffic jams, Britain stuck in traffic. What does it look like? Mm -hmm. Who are we stuck in? We are a nation stuck in traffic jams. And I took it because there wasn't much else going and I really needed work. I couldn't just afford to sort of sit back and wait for something that really, really sort of got my juices flowing. And I yeah. took it. It was a mistake because I, I didn't drive, I didn't have a car, I didn't commute. And I was going to make a film about people who spent their lives in cars commuting. So my engagement with the, the, the people and the subject wasn't in any way personal. And it, we encountered many, many problems in it. So you, all your protagonists are stuck. No one's actually going anywhere. So there's nothing's actually happening in it. And that is a difficult hour on Channel 4 to fill, right. prime time, 9 o'clock, right? Sort of watching paint dry kind um, of springs to mind. Basically, the edit's totally overrunning, and I have got no idea really how to solve this problem. I can't make these characters into something. They're not doing anything, and the film just isn't, isn't working. So I'm cycling back, and there's no, there, there seems to be no solution to all of these problems, and it's all on me, right? I'm the producer and the director. There's no one else, really, who is shouldering that. And... I just thought that is it. I'm done. Uh, I'm done. I'm done from this work professionally. I'm not a filmmaker. I've never been a filmmaker. I can't do it. I haven't got the skills. 
and it became incredibly personal that like, I am utterly unworthy as a my life's a sham I mean it, it became really 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 dark um, really dark and that was quite a spiral and it took some coming back from if I'm really honest who do you talk uh, to at times like that or what do you do with yourself when you're feeling in your in your darkest place I checked myself into therapy at that point you know I just thought this is this is obviously unsustainable and and like who am I in all this I'm getting lost in this my identity was completely bound up in in whether or not this film was going to be a success which is a very dangerous place to be and I recognized that which was well if you feel that your life is a sort of sex, success or failure based entirely upon the outcome of a 48 minute television documentary then you're in a lot of trouble I sort of I sort of fantasized about other jobs that's it I was in a jack in filmmaking I fantasized about being one of those gardeners in the royal parks that I would cycle past or I was going to buy a Land Rover and I was going to drive to Cape Town and learn how to be a mechanic and it took a few months to come back from that and I never want to sail that close again but at the same time I suppose I've, I've sort of tried to both be cautious of and embrace that shadow that's always slightly lurking of not being good enough. And I, and I hope that it, in a sense now when the relationship's a bit more healthy that it can give me a bit of juice is the one word I, word I want to reach for. It's like a sense of, oh, let's just, you know, I want to go to quite difficult places. I want to test myself. I, I'm um, like astounded that you are still making documentaries when it, it sounds like you've had a rather agonizing career well that was i mean that was look that was definitely the sort of lowest point but at each project um, you're saying you have these hurdles and these demons that you're pushing through and you're recognizing when you feel like this and working out what to do and how to move forward but at the same time i don't suppose that many people who work in a supermarket as a gardener have the same sort of emotional turmoil about the job that they're doing I mean, that's where I, mean, I think the sort of understanding my own relationship with that, with that sort of the anxiety that goes with it is quite important. I, I now regard that anxiety as not exactly a friend, but a colleague on the road. You know, I do some um, teaching to young filmmakers and I often say, often when they come in a, in a crisis of like, I don't think I've got the film or I haven't found the character. I said, well, that feeling of insecurity and uncertainty is as much a part of the process as logging rushes. I mean, that is... That is the part of it for me. And I think you you have to embrace that and draw some kind of fuel out of it to make you do better, you know. And that's not to say it's easy, but I think one has to accept quite profound personal uncertainty as part of the process. Mm. And then when the film goes out, I'll watch it and i go, you know, I'll have a moment of going, well, yeah, I did that, I made that and can feel good about it. But it's it's gone within days and I'm back to square one. It's exactly where I'm at now. I was very pleased with the Ukraine film I'm now I'm now starting, it I'm starting again what is it that keeps bringing you back from that edge back to TV back to making documentaries well, that's a devilishly good question I don't know the answer really there's something slightly addictive about it I mean it's it's not far away from like you bash your head against a wall for seven months and then when you stop god it feels good <laughs> uh, there, there, I sort of want that again I love that 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 week, that, those kind of like 10 days maybe, your final post where you're making the you're grading and the sound mix is looking really good and all the final versions of the music comes in and all that chaos that I've lived through and all that uncertainty of is this or is this not a film and is this person a character or not and, and it all starts to sort of formalise and take shape and then you've got this mm-hmm. thing that's, you know, 58 and a half minutes long and it's going to be seen by people and 
and it might change them in some way it might lay an egg in someone's head and that is enormously satisfying um but then the prospect now is you sort of pick up everything and you start again whole new set of tools whole new set of people it sounds exhausting exhausting it is it's completely exhausting no wonder you need two three but, months off <laughs> but there's no other there's nothing else yeah. like it you know i can't do anything else um i don't feel i can do anything else mm. you have you ever walked away from a day in the edit and gone woohoo it's looking brilliant it's never quite like that. The, the, closest, <laughs> the closest I've got, there's a few moments cutting the Ukraine film recently where my editor and I, we were working remotely. We'd, we'd one evening, we'd say, well, let's both watch it tonight and then just check in. And I think there were a few moments where I texted him to say, well, after 12 minutes, I'm in. As in, I'm with the story. And, or the first half's almost working. <laughs> that's, that's High praise from Ollie Lambert. Or basically, if I'm not bored much, I would say that's high praise. It's like, okay, that's, it's not going to get any better. Or if that moments of, if I feel, okay, that scene is now truthful to what I think was mm. really happening and it means something. It's never like I've nailed it. It's, I've watched, I watch my own films through the gaps in my fingers, really, of like, oh, well, I, I messed that up. I could have been there. I should have done that longer. I should have held that shot. I don't have a shot of that. So we had to cut to that. You know, the, that will you know. be massively reassuring for the listener because I think I mean I, I've been there as a director and you've faced faced with your own footage in the edit oh my life do you feel like you're naked mm. because you're suddenly yeah, like yeah. why did I not film that wide why did I not ask that question what the hell was that person mm. doing over there in that shot and we all know that when you're on location there are a myriad of different reasons why that is the case and why you didn't do those things but it doesn't make it mm. any less painful I, I think I should do a, like a, I should do a film of mine and do the director's commentary that is basically narrating all the things that I didn't do and that I messed up and the reason why you're looking at this shot is because I didn't get the other shot and the reason I'm looking at this is because there's a whole other story that I oh, missed oh we're on something there yeah, I people mean, people pay good money for that, Ollie. Maybe that's what you should be right. doing with your time. Only about four people. It's a niche venture, but um, that's the, the internal monologue I've got. Look, there's there's a, a, a very good director friend of mine. She lit, she cannot watch her own films once they've once she's finished them. She never watches them again. It's too painful. Well, it's also because you've just spent <laughs> weeks in an edit staring at it. Which... But I remember getting one of the first films I did was in Iraq in 2003, like 20 years ago, and I shot for a month in this military camp. And I got back to a very wise editor, Stefan Ronovitz, one of the greats, you know, and I never worked with him before. And I put this bag of tapes, bag of DV cam tapes on his desk. And I was really honest, I took a deep breath and I said, Stefan, I haven't got a clue what this film's about. And I thought it was a great confession. Like, I'm really sorry. And he said, excellent. It's a perfect place to start. Really? And he meant it. He meant it. It's like this is where the job starts. Yeah, that that instinct or that um, that spirit, I think is as that is re that is really cool. The, this Ukraine film that was critically very well received. Um, I mean, I shot eighty percent of that film. I messed up the camera. I had the I, I was baking in a LUT, and for anyone who knows cameras, it's like the biggest mistake you ever make. And it wasn't until I got to the grade that the grader said, "Yeah, it's going to be tricky this because obviously you've um, you've put in Rec Seven O Nine." I said, "No, no, 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 definitely shot S Log Three he goes no you didn't and that was when I realised on the Thursday of the week of final post that's a massive mistake holy Huge. moly yeah how did yeah, you get I mean, around that just don't tell anyone 
except me. Oops. No one else is listening, don't worry. <laughs> There's just a catalogue of errors, that is what I see. Yeah, and it look, you know, yeah, it's a good film. I think it's a good film. But um, it's it's a good film in spite of me. <laughs> You are the most self-deprecating person. No, no, I know. that's not fake. That's that is not fake modesty. It's like I, I've dodged bullets. I mean, you know, metaphorical bullets in there of, of uh, huge errors. So, talking uh, about Ukraine, then, did you go there with a plan of what you wanted to get, and then how did that plan play out? Yeah, it played out how I thought, which was, I'll go with a plan, and that plan will turn out to be rubbish, and then we'll have to quickly find another one. That's literally what I said at the commissioning meeting. I said, let's go out with a skeleton template. And the skeleton template was a single character who was the regional governor of Mykolaiv region in southern Ukraine. And let's make a film about him. Um, and sure enough, he didn't really want to have a film made about him and we couldn't film him in any meaningful way and he wasn't really a very good character. So the thing is, I've been doing it long enough now to, to sort of almost expect that to happen. But that was my excuse to be there. And then then the nerves kick in it's like well now we're in a situation because we had a high-risk advisor with us i had a local producer for most of it i had a, a british producer we had a hire car we had hotel costs it's, we're burning thousands of pounds a day just to be there i've got to find a film really quickly and that's when the work starts you know when you start hunting and where are you at at this point in your head with handling that that pressure that creative i don't know what this is going to be yet well now i'm okay with that the job is to ha have my antennae out as wide as possible, tuning in to every conversation, everyone I meet, everywhere I go, every possible shot, GV, street, character, everyone's um, up for grabs, right? And, and to get back at the end of a day and think, okay, we didn't find it today, but that's okay, we've got tomorrow, rather than, well, I've met, I've met some B-list people, let's just go for it. It's like, well, we can probably afford to hold out for another week, 10 days maybe, before we have to sort of commit. I'm familiar with that space where I'm not gonna panic. Steve Standen, brilliant cameraman, when I started out, I was asking him for advice really on how to shoot. And he said, the best way to shoot observational footage is to have a quick mind and slow feet. And I think that's a brilliant way of you. I use that phrase to myself, like a mantra. Yeah, that's just quick mind, turned slow in my feet. head. That's clever. Yeah, we can scamper up. We meet as many people as possible, but almost just like watch and take everything in but process it as fast as you can. That's one of my little mantras that'll keep me sane in those in those situations. And also, I can usually say to myself, well, I've had it worse. I've been in worse situations. I've been in more panic situations. Um, I've been more uncertain. I've had weaker characters. I've had weaker stories. And that worked out okay. So I can have a word with myself and say, trust your judgment here. You can probably pull this off you know without that, anyone, know, anyone mean, noticing it it's only taken how many years ollie for that 20 <laughs> yeah i know and, and uh, all of those films under your belt but that sounds like you've come to a sense of sort of clarity and and confidence in being unconfident yeah word? i know that's a really I, i'm confident in being unconfident yeah I, I mean that's i'm i accept that i mean you the ukraine film the most recent thing i did I actually, we, I discussed this exact thing with my the commissioning team. I said, look, we'll go out with a plan. It won't work. It won't be very good. <laughs> That'll happen in about five days. And then we'll quickly have to regroup and then consider our options. But, but in the process of being there with some kind of purpose, that's the work. 
and and that's part of it. There's a cameraman friend of mine. He says to take good photos. The the thing you've got to do is just just start taking photos, right? Mm-hmm. And then you'll work out what a good photo is. And I, I think it's similar. It, there's that's with the fo- with the photographic element of documentary films. It's like, well, yeah, it might be a good shot, but just start filming, and then you'll start to see a good shot. But similarly, just start being with people. Start having those conversations. Um, even if you're not sure, but that's I've, part I've of I've heard the it's the same about podcasting. Oh, yeah, and how's it going for you, Kim? You no, know, it could be better, to be honest. I mean, some of the yeah, guests I've got lined up first. Know, are a pretty, bit, pretty low rent, desperate. A bit to, questionable. A <laughs> lot of time on their hands. <laughs> These guys. <laughs> it takes a huge amount of confidence from a commissioner as well for you to tell them you're going to take their money out to that location and burn through it whilst not whilst having a plan that you know is not going to work. I mean, that that's, I suppose, a certain level of, well, a huge level of trust from that commissioner to you based on your career and CV, which is, you know, in itself re- reassuring for you, I suppose. But they wouldn't let any old person go out and do that. No, that's a fair point. And I realise I've sort of, that's a privilege, which I, I would sort of, I would say I've, I've earned that. I've been doing it long enough to say, well, look, I, I'll lie and say, trust me, I can pull it off. Um, but no, I appreciate that. And I actually said, to, it was Joe Carr at the BBC, and I, there was a, we had a screening, and I said, I, I wanted to say this was a very brave commission. I said, well, more than that, actually, it was a very trusting commission. She mm-hmm. was trusting me to do it. But, the, you know, the demons don't go away. They just sort of, they just become more visible and more familiar. Is, is your demon got a name? Well, he's me, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's Ollie. <laughs> he's Oliver. There's a story I read years ago, and it's one of those little you know stories that always stuck with me. But it's called uh, "A Wizard of Earthsea" by Ursula Le Guin. It's actually a therapist. He said, "I don't often do this, but I think you might like this book." Mm-hmm. And it's, it's it's sort of a children's story. It's sort of magical, magical children's story. Um, it's similar in many ways to Harry Potter. But anyone who wants to read the book, stop now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it away. But the story is about this little wizard who's who's got a gift. But he uses it badly, and in using it badly, he conjures from the earth this kind of demon. And this demon, he never quite sees it, he doesn't know what it looks like, but he knows it's out there, and he's released it, and it starts to chase him. So the little wizard starts to run, and of course this demon starts running after him. Ooh, terrifying. And the faster he runs, the faster it runs, and he goes as far away as he can, and it's still there. And then it takes the sh- it takes the form of people around him. It takes the form of people he meets. He suddenly realizes, oh, that's the demon inside this person. Anyway, eventually he meets this this little wizard. He meets this wise old man, and the wise old man says to him uh, some simple advice, which is, it's not going to stop chasing you. You need to start chasing it. You need to hunt it. And the next the next day, the wise old man wakes up, and the and the little boy has left a note on his on his kitchen table. It just says, "Gone hunting." And the little boy, the little wizard, has has gone off, and he starts to chase it. And of course, the minute the boy starts to chase the demon, the demon starts running away. Ah. And he chases it and chases it. And the end of the story, which I'm now going to give away, is that he ends up chasing it to kind of the edge of the world. Basically, mm-hmm. he's out at sea, and it's in a place where the sea and the sky and the land become one, and it's. It's the end of the world. He's in a boat. He's looking for it. It's probably and a golden hour, isn't it, for the visuals? It must have looked amazing. And I th- it was colourless. It was oh. grey and white, kind of white, okay. grey, colourless. It was at the end of everything. And he suddenly realises that there's something in the boat with him, behind him. And it's this demon, this shadow. And he turns round. And, of course, it is standing in the boat with him. And it's him. It's his, a shadow of himself. And he doesn't fight it. He walks up to it and he embraces it. And they become, he accepts it. 
And that might be going pretty deep, but oh. that's that's how I understand I this think, sense of uncertainty. I think the story that you've told during our conversation is kind of that. That's well, it. that's I would be touched if that is true, but I suppose that's my my way of understanding it is that it's part of it. I can't run away mm. from the feeling of anxiety and, and uncertainty and insecurity and inferiority to my own sort of self and aspirations. I'm not going to get away from that. So I have sort of I suppose I hope I've, you know when I can incorporate it and go well. This is part of not just the process. It's part of me. You know that's, that anxiety is a is a driver, and hopefully that gives me something to to make good work you know and I'll and I'll just keep taking it with me because it's not going anywhere I love that is there one thing that you wish you'd known when you were more junior it's sort of that there's not the fairy godmother who taps you on the forehead with a magic wand and says you know you now know how to make a documentary film it's like embrace the uncertainty embrace the insecurity because that's going to give you something just as much as being able to shoot or being able to ask a decent question in a brave way at a certain moment that's that's who you need to be it's a great answer i wonder if you'd have even you'd have been able to understand and appreciate that yeah no probably not yeah. i've gone shut up I've just been commissioned by channel four <laughs> <laughs> don't need you mate <laughs> i'm off <laughs> Yeah, cut to blithering mess in Stoke Newington 15 years later, exactly. <laughs> oh, Ollie, thank you so much for sharing Pleasure. so freely about... I think I've overshared. Oh, yeah, but that's the whole point. <laughs> I don't think enough people share in this industry and we're all in our own heads. Whether you're making a documentary, a big splashy entertainment thing, if you're whether you're a writer, whatever you're doing that's creative, it is so personal and subjective. I do feel that... We, we are a lonely bunch in an, an actually quite an overcrowded mm. world. And yeah. by sharing how you have handled your demons over the years, I really do think you will have comforted and reassured some. And also given, given people ideas of how to run with it, how to live with it, rather than, you know, dropping everything and letting it uh, d- debilitate you. Then run away from it. Yeah. Look, Ollie, thank you so much for your time today. I've loved chatting to you. It's been just brilliant. Thank you. Pleasure. Right, come on, imposters. Let's get everyone talking about this stuff more. Open up your WhatsApp groups and tell your production pals they need to listen to The Imposter Club. Everyone loves a podcast recommend, and this is so relevant for them. So that kudos you'll get back is a free gift from me. See you next time. The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist TV executive search and production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Every day, the team matchmake, influence and place premium senior talent in behind the screens roles with integrity and a human approach. Produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, executive producer, Rosie Turner. Thanks again to Edit Cloud for editing this series.